come to Acts chapter 2 and we somehow think that God has been missing in the person of the Holy Spirit. But that is in fact nothing but, tr- but untrue. Because the reality is that the Holy Spirit has been present from Genesis 1-1 all the way up through Acts 2. He's never been absent. He is a part of the Trinity, the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And because God has been on the planet and actively working, and because His Son, and even in the Old Testament, has been present and actively working, the person of the Holy Spirit, also a part of the Trinity, has equally been working. He has been present, and He has been moving and operating under the leadership of God the Father and then in the New Testament through God the Son because we know that Jesus in our study a couple of weeks ago was not only filled with the Spirit but was led by the Spirit, kept in step with the Spirit. So the Spirit of God was actively working through the Son of God under the direction of the Father who was a part of the Trinity. And so as a result of that, the Spirit's not been absent. He's been actively working. But here in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, we saw in Acts 1-1, everything changes, and it changes because the Spirit begins to work in a way that He has not been working before. It's different. And this difference is going to make all the difference in our lives. I said this difference is going to make a difference in all of our lives. Because the difference that it makes now is that the person of the Holy Spirit is not only present, but he is personal. And through that personal presence, we can tap into the power that's available to us in Christ. For the moment we place our faith and trust in Jesus and accept him as our Savior and turn from our sin and and receive him as our Lord, at that moment we then receive this beautiful indwelling of the presence of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who resides within us. And so we no longer have to pray for power. We have all of the power through the personal presence of the person of the Holy Spirit. You get all those speech down? And as a result of that, we just have to tap into the resource that is there. And I, I, I contend that the reason why most of us have, have a problem living the life that God has called us to live as we follow in the Lordship of Christ is because we are not tapping into the person of the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit who already dwells within us. We, not, we, we do not need any more of him. We have all of the Spirit of God residing with us. What he needs is more of us, and that's part of the problem. We'll look at that in a little bit later on. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 2, and let's look at four points that I want to make today as we discover this beautiful activity of the arrival of the Spirit of God. Number one, we see the providence of God realized. As we look at the activity and the presence The arrival of the Holy Spirit, we see the providence of God realized. Now, let me define to you what providence is, because providence sometimes is a word that is often confusing. When we hear it, it means divine guidance. It means, if you look it up in the Webster's Dictionary, that God is actively or God is conceived as the power that is sustaining and guiding human destiny. He is... It is conceived as the power sustaining 
and guiding human destiny. Meaning that God, in, as he reigns on his throne, is guiding and sustaining and orchestrating human history to, to meet his divine sovereign plan. He has a plan and God is executing that plan. And as God who reigns on his throne, he has all of the authority, all of the sovereignty to make that happen. And we see in Acts chapter 2 this sovereign activity of the Spirit of God as he is providentially acting out his will. This is something that he has planned all along. It's not an oops where God has decided he's going to sort of plan B or plan C because his other plans didn't work. He has been divinely throughout from Genesis 1 up into Acts 2 been actively working out his plan and his purpose as the sovereign providential God that he is so that in Acts 2.1 now is the fulfillment of what he promised in the Old Testament and what Jesus promised his disciples would happen when he was teaching them in those times when he spent with his, his, his followers. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, we see, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. We see this beautiful explanation, the sovereign work of of God, when the day of Pentecost arrived. When it arrived. It arrived. It arrived by by the sovereign hand and the providential plan of God. God made it arrive. It is something that he has been orchestrating all along. It's something that he's promised and it's something that he now realized. Notice when the day of Pentecost arrived. When it arrived. The day of Pentecost we know that was, uh, was what many believed in Israel was the, uh, was the week of feasts. It was a seven-week celebration in, in which they, they honored and glorified God for his bounty following the harvest. And so this seven weeks that always happened after the Pentecost was a time of celebration and time of thanksgiving for God's bounty. But the Greek translation begins to identify the word Pentecost for 50 days following the crucifixion. We talked about the crucifixion last week. Now that the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus has happened, 50 days later we have what we call Pentecost. For 40 days we saw in Acts chapter 1 where we see the final walk where Jesus had his disciples walking with him, did we not? Then we saw the final word that he gave to his disciples when he left, as just before he ascended, he said that John baptized you with the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to, I mean, John, sorry, John baptized you with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit will empower you then to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he promised them this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then that baptism of the person of the Holy Spirit would empower them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then we see the final warning when they're sitting there gazing at Jesus in the sky. And all of a sudden, uh, the two guys in white sort of tap them on the shoulder and say, Hey guys, why are you staring in the heavens? The guy, this Jesus who left, is returning just as he did. You need to be about what he told you to do. You need to get to Jerusalem. And so they, they go. And now we see the final waiting period at the end of Acts 1 where they're waiting for the promise to arrive. And now in Acts 2, they're awaiting for the arrival of the Spirit of God. They wait 10 days. It doesn't seem like a lot, but they're waiting for the arrival of the Spirit of God. Why? Because it was providentially promised by God that He would come. And notice in the last part of that sentence, they were all together in one place. 
The saints were all together in one place. They, the disciples of Jesus, were all together. I think that word together is an important word. It helps us realize that they were all there. There are some who want to sort of convince us in their commentaries that not all the disciples were there. But this passage is very clear that they were all together in one place. I think all of the, who is going to miss out on the promise of the Holy Spirit? Who is not going to be present at this particular time? If you remember when Christ promised to, to, to rise from the dead, there were some who were not there and who didn't receive the news, especially downing Thomas, and as a result of not being there when Christ was present. And so there were times when they came and went during the, uh, during the crucifixion and then after uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ. But at this particular juncture, after Jesus had brought them all together for those 40 days, they were not going to be apart until the promise of the Pentecostal power of God through the person of the Holy Spirit would come. And so they were all together. I'm convinced whenever God's people are together, incredible things happen. But notice they were in one place. Nobody really knows what one place that is. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, they take you to a place where they believe it's the upper room. And I've stood there and I've looked into the room where they believe that the Holy Spirit came. But, but you know, they have all of those things that they believe this and this and believe that. And you can stand on the very limestone they believe this Jesus stood on. I'm not sure all of that's quite true, but it's very impressive to sort of how, somehow imagine that reality. But they were in the upper room or some place like that. There were 120 people gathered in one place. Why were they there? Because that's where Jesus told them to go. And as a result, we see this providential reality that is beginning to take place. Why? Because God is orchestrating all of this for his purpose. If you remember Acts chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 6, I believe, uh, 4 through 8, were they asked about the kingdom? The disciples do in this 40-day venture with Jesus. And he tells them that God the Father is the one who has fit everything together. He fixes by his own authority human history. Why is this taking place? Because God wants it to happen. Now, if you can imagine the disciples who left everything to follow Jesus and then they watched him die thought it was the end and then he rose from the dead and he assembled them back together for 40 days and he taught them about the kingdom and taught them about many things and then he tells them to go wait in a room and they're waiting for him in this room and they're waiting 10 days imagine the anticipation the expectation the anxiety the nervousness of what they must have been going through as they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting waiting for what waiting for the providential activity of God because he prophesied it and he promised it. And so they are waiting for that arrival. Why? Because God has fixed it all together. Isn't it great to know that in a world so filled with chaos and confusion and uncertainty and insecurity that we have a God who is on the throne, who is actively, providentially realizing his will, his plan, and his purpose for our lives. I don't know about you, but that kind of sort of sets me at ease. It makes me realize that I'm not on this venture or this journey by myself, but I have a God who is providentially enacting his sovereign will in my life to lead me and to guide me into the places that he wants to take me and you so that we can then not only experience his will, but fulfill his will as he operates through us. So the providence of God is realized in Acts 2.1. And secondly, notice the presence of God as is revealed in verse 2. 
The presence of God is now revealed. In Acts 2.2 it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. That word suddenly sort of jumps out to me. God's presence suddenly came down from heaven. Suddenly. Wait a minute, Charles. I thought you said that they had been waiting for 10 days. Well, it was a sudden thing. Um, I live somewhat in the country, and um, not many people come and ring our doorbell. But when it does, it takes us by surprise. It does. And it's usually somebody selling, you know, cookies for us to buy or some kid in the neighborhood raising funds for their ball team or something like that. Or maybe it's the UPS who's delivering something. But if you can imagine as these disciples are in the upper room awaiting for the arrival of the promise of the Holy Spirit, there, there wasn't a doorbell that, that said, hey, I'm coming. There wasn't a, a knock on the door so that you're not startled. It was sudden. I mean, they, it was somewhat unexpected, yet it was it wasn't. And as a result of them being up there now 10 days, they don't know when or when or where or how this is going to happen. And so they don't even know what to expect. So they're up in the room and then suddenly, it says, it came down from heaven. What came down from heaven? Meaning that it came from God, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Notice the sound. There was a sound. Now, notice the words, like a mighty rushing wind. It was not a rushing wind per se. It wasn't the wind that we know in Wichita. Okay? Uh, I'm told that during the pioneer days that the wind here used to drive the women crazy who were in their, in their homes, right? They went insane. But whoo, it never stops. I don't know about you, but when the wind stops in Wichita, I think, what's wrong? Really, you know what I'm saying? This is abnormal. I don't know why we are the airplane capital of the United States of America because there are so many wind currents here. I would imagine it must have been hard in the early days to get planes to get up in the air. I don't, somebody can explain that to me later. I've never been able to understand that. Or imagine all of a sudden we're in this place here this morning and a tornado came through here. Now, it was a strong, mighty wind. But in spite of its might, it didn't move us from our seats, and it didn't destroy anything, but it sounded like a tornado going through the upper room. It was a sound. They heard. What did they hear? They heard the presence of God. They understood that through this sound that was like a mighty rushing wind that it was the sound of the presence of God and it came where they were sitting and it was significant enough to fill the entire room with the presence of God have you ever been in a place where you have felt the presence of God before a couple of years ago I think it was um, three years ago at the together for the gospel conference and uh, we were on the, the last of the days, and uh, a preacher got up to preach, and at the end, the president of Southern Seminary came in and uh, came up to the platform and, and led us in a time of prayer. And I'll never forget that day as long as I live. There were about nine, I don't know, maybe 11,000 of us in this Coliseum. Um, uh, it's, it's those kind of conferences that give me hope. 
uh, because you know, you begin to realize and wonder, is the next generation going to pick up the banner and going to take the gospel of Christ to a lost world? And you see that, that at, when I'm there, I'm the oldest guy there. Everybody else is 40 and under. And when you see nine to 10,000 young men and women get together like that, it kind of gives you hope that there's a future for the church. But anyway, and, and it came to a close at that T4G conference in Louisville, Kentucky, when uh, the president of Southern Seminary led in prayer. And at the end, or the, during that time, there was a sound that I'll never forget. Now, these are conservative, Bible-believing, non-Pentecostal people. There was groanings, and there were sounds, and there were prayers all throughout that complex. And that sound gave me goosebumps because I heard the presence of God. I'll never forget it. And there have been moments in here like this morning when as we are singing these songs, you can get goosebumps and you can hear by those sounds the presence of God. I know God's presence is here. How do I know that? I can hear the sound of his voice. He is present. and He is here because we are here. So his presence was revealed. Number three, the provision of God is received. God is providing for them exactly what he has promised through this miraculous supernatural presence of the person of the Holy Spirit who will dwell in them. And I'm not, I'm not 100% convinced of what I'm about to tell you. So, um, you know, if you want to argue theology and biblical doctrine, let's do it after church, not today. But I'm almost certain that this is where, I'm about 90% there. I need to do further studies, so it's dangerous to kind of throw this out there because I know some of you may, may run with it and may not. I, I'm of the belief that as we read this, that this is where they receive the personal presence of the Holy Spirit is when the fire falls on them. Let's read it. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Notice it appeared before they heard. Now it appears. They see something that is supernatural. What do they see? I'm convinced what they see is a single flame. It starts out, it comes from heaven, and it starts out as a single flame that's coming down from heaven. It's like a, a fire. It's not a fire, but it, notice, as of fire. There are many who want to make this a literal fire, but it looked like fire. It was as of, it was similar to in the appearance of a fire, a single flame coming down. And as it came down, it then divided itself. And notice as it divided itself, it rested on each one of them. So it divided into 120 smaller Flames, possibly, that landed on each one of the disciples. Notice it rested on them. It settled on them. I don't know about you, but that freaked me out. Would it you? You have no idea what's about to happen. You don't know how this miraculous supernatural activity is going to happen, and you're waiting for it, and all of a sudden this, whoo, 
this wind comes in, kind of it sounds like it and seems like it, and I can feel the presence of God filling the place, and there's anticipation rising, and all of a sudden this flame comes down, and it divides up into 120, and it falls on each of our heads, and you're standing there, and you know how sometimes you're in worship here, and you look at your neighbor and see how they're worshiping, and you know what I'm saying? You don't do that, do you? Yes, you do. You got a flame on your head, Mark. I knew you something strange about you, dude. And Mark says, well, guy, you got a flame on your head. And you're looking at the 120 in the upper room, and this, this flame has divided and it's rested, noted, on each one of them. Each. It's positioned itself on each one of them. Everyone received the flame. Now, it wouldn't be unusual for us to be in a room and think, well, the 12 would receive the flame. Or maybe 50 of the, of the 120 there. Because, you know, they're the special Christians, the deep thinkers, and the, the, the more talented disciples. But all 120, each one of them. Now, keep in mind, there were men and women in the upper room. So that means not only did the men receive the flame... But the women also received the flame. But notice one. While it is a communal, community receiving of the Spirit, it's done one at a time, individually, and it's personally. They received the Spirit. How could this be possible? Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament, one of the miraculous times when there was a flame was when Moses was sort of in trouble, if you remember, and he was sort of off to himself, and out of the middle of nowhere, a bush catches on fire. But if you remember what the Bible says, that while the bush was on fire, the flame did not consume the bush. Remember? So how could a flame be on someone and they not be consumed? Well, similar to the bush that Moses saw. Then you see the, the presence of God through that bush, but later on as the people, the children of Israel are walking through the wilderness for 40 years till they get to the promised land, what, what, what is over them at night that protects them from the enemy? A fire, a flame. Why? Symbolic of the presence of God. Not only was it symbolic of the presence of God, but I'm convinced it was symbolic of, of God uh, accepting them, of God putting his spirit on them and in them. And this was the activity of God, I think, bringing about this, this consecration where he is consecrating his people with the person of the spirit of God. They each, 120 of them, received the spirit of God. Romans 8, 1 said, says, the spirit of him who raised him from the dead dwells in you. You have the presence of the Spirit of God in you at the moment of your salvation. For when you, when you receive Jesus as your Savior and place your faith and trust in Him, the beauty about all of this is that He comes through a supernatural work, not only regenerating my spirit and giving me new birth, but He places His Spirit in me as a Christ follower. And when I walk away from that conversion experience, I forever am provided with a person of the Spirit of God who resides in my life. I don't know about you, but that's mysterious and it's miraculous at the same time. I don't fully understand it. 
How can a person, the third person of the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and yet now the Spirit lives in us as his permanent dwelling place. You see, God has provided for us all of the resource that is necessary. Notice I didn't say resources, all of the resource that is necessary, and that resource is found through the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. The moment you are born again, you receive the provision of the personal presence of the Holy Spirit who now dwells in you, giving you the sufficiency that you need to follow Christ. So really, we have no excuse, do we? And for fourth and final, not only we see the providence of God realized, the presence of God revealed, the provision of God received, but the power of God now is released. I think once the, the flame, the spirit, the presence fell on the individual 120, notice they were then engulfed with the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice, and they were they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice the movement of the Spirit. He came down as one, he divided into 120, and he fell on all 120, and then once he did that, notice he filled, he filled, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The word all stands alone in this text in the original language, saying that they were all, not only did they all receive, but they all were filled. Everyone in the room was filled, all of them, men and women. Not just including the 12, but all 120 who were present. But the phrase, they were filled with, is one word in the original language. They, the 120, were. It's not a hope anymore. It's not an expectation anymore. It's not just a desire anymore. It is now a reality. They were, they are now filled with the Holy Spirit. The word filled means that they were filled. What does the word filled mean? Here's what it means. He has all of me and I have all of him. Or you can put it the other way. I have all of him. And he has all of me. You can't be filled with the Holy Spirit unless he has all of you. And at some point in the study, we'll go into deeper aspect about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't be filled with the Holy Spirit as long as me is in the way. But when there's less of me, when I am, when I am seeking to, to die to myself, or as John said it, he must increase, but I must decrease as I decrease, as I vacate, as I move myself out of the way, then the Spirit of God is able then to come and to fill me with himself. And the reason why many of us are not operating in the fullness of the, of the power of the Spirit of God is because there's too much of me or self in the way. And we must empty ourselves of self so that as we vacate room for him, he can then fill us with his spirit. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then he empowers us to be able to live the life that he's called us to live. All were filled with the Holy Spirit. In the original language, spirit comes before holy. So they were filled with the spirit, but then they were consecrated as holy. When the filling of the Spirit happens, there's a consecration that takes place, a cleansing that takes place, a purification that takes place, where we become cleansed of our sin and begin to speak in other tongues. Wow. 
Notice the manifestation of the Spirit. As soon as they were filled, they began to speak in tongues. You know, this is probably one of the most debated scriptures that we can find in the New Testament church today. It's been debated for centuries. Well, what does it mean to speak in other tongues? They began to speak. This was the first sign or the first step, the first manifestation of the, of the fullness and the presence of the Spirit of God. They began to speak like I'm speaking. They used their words. They began to speak in other tongues. And the word tongues simply means languages. That's what it means, languages. It's not some gibberish. It's not some, some foreign, non-world language. While there are other places that the Apostle Paul talks about different types of tongues and, and, and all of that, that's not what happens here. What happens here is they speak in other languages, languages that were not known to them. And we know that these languages were languages that other people knew because of their nationality because when they began to to speak the ones who were there who hear they hear what they're speaking in their native tongue and how could they be speaking in my native tongue when they're not from my neighborhood they don't they don't have my same nationality they they have not been raised where i've been raised and there were people from all over the world who were there because of not only the passover and some of the layover of that but because of the the festival of the of the weeks and the celebration of the harvest there jerusalem was a was a global town and they heard these wonderful praises in their own languages and it startled them and so it's not some some gibberish. It's human language as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice the means by which they speak. How do they speak? The Spirit is the means by which they speak. He is the power source that is working and operating in them that enables them and empower them to do that. I mean, Jesus promised they would take the gospel uh, J- Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world, how are they going to do that? They're going to be filled by, with the means and the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who is operating in and through them to be able to accomplish the mission with the message that the Savior has given them. The power of God is released. You know, it's not uncommon for us to say, well, I don't really feel much of what you're talking about, I don't seem to have much power. Well, if you're a Christ follower, then it, it, it's important that we understand that Jesus himself operated in the Spirit. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who could have and who was equal to God, didn't necessarily need to submit himself to the, to the Holy Spirit, but he did, showing us this is how we do it. The Bible says in Luke 4, 1, and Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. We see in Mark 1, 12, that the Spirit immediately drove him out of the wilderness. After he was baptized by John the Baptist and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, he then was driven immediately from that moment. He was driven out by the Spirit. The Spirit drove him to the wilderness. We see in John 16, 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. That is your advantage that I go away? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But I go, and I will send him to you. We need a helper. Because we cannot survive. We cannot live. We cannot obey. We cannot follow. 
alone. Well, that sounds like codependency to me. And it sounds like Christians are a bunch of weaklings. And in my humanity, I'm well aware of my inability. And I need to be cognizant of my humility so that I can turn to him for what I need, for the power source that is necessary to be able to, when I'm in that crossroads we talked about earlier, and I'm tempted to run because of, of fear or insecurity, uncertainty, and the challenge, what, what, makes, what makes us run toward the call of God for our lives? It's not discipline. It's not desire. It's not something I muster up. But I tap into a resource greater than myself, and that is the Spirit of God who dwells in me. And I empty myself of me, and he fills me with the Spirit of God, because I already have him here, so he fills me up with him. And as a result of that, I'm able to live the life that he's called me to live. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Down to verse 16, and according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. And again, in the same book, Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him to be the glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and forever. Amen. We already have the person of the Holy Spirit within us. We already have all the power in the resource of that presence and that power within us. Then what's the problem? Why can't I seem to operate in that power? Well, it's interesting here in Acts 7, 51. There's a, a sort of a, a little passage tucked away here where someone had the gall, standing before a crowd, said... You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. I wish it weren't true, but I can resist the Holy Spirit. That's why the Apostle Paul told Timothy to fan the flame of the Spirit of God. It is possible for us to quench the Holy Spirit. And yet the person of the Holy Spirit is so personal that he, like God, can be so sensitive to our refusal and our rejection of him. And I wonder, is the reason why you're not operating in the fullness of God's Spirit is because you've been resisting him, suppressing him? Maybe you completely denied his existence. Maybe you've not tapped into the resource that's already there. Are you? Or am I? Are we at times guilty of that? Yes. May they be less and less times like that in my life and your life. And more and more of tapping in to the person, presence, and the power of the Spirit of God who dwells within us. Let's pray.